Good evening. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians. And yes, I am a one-hit wonder. Go ahead and plan on that being the case. Um, So we're going to be in chapter 1 today, but in a strange turn of events. We're not going to start in verse 1. We're going to start in verse 27. (laughs) Um, And the reason for that is, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at the whole book of Philippians, if you'll remember. But our focus was chapter 2, 1 to 11. It's called the Hymn of Christ. Uh, And what we're going to do is we're just going to back it up a few verses and look at the four verses that lead into that. And to kind of help us get some more context as to what we have already talked about. And also, I think that these four verses are really helpful for the book as a whole. And so, before we do that, though, we're going to pray one more time. Uh, And thank you again to Joe for leading us. Lord, pray that you would bless this time. I pray that you would increase and I might decrease. As I preach in weakness, I pray that your power and your good pleasure would reign over me. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So... These verses, again, we're going to be in 27 through 30 of chapter 1 tonight. Uh, They're what I like to call the flyover verses, um, because just like the flyover states, you never really go there, you're just on your way to something better, right? So if you're reading Philippians straight through, you've just finished um, what I call the banger of like verse 18, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Everybody knows that. And then the hymn of Christ we looked at last time is also very popular, but there's actually several verses in between that nobody can really remember. They're like, I know there's a couple there, but I don't really know what they are. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And the reason for that is because if we skip over these or just kind of blow past them in our Bible reading when we're heading towards uh, maybe trying to get to verse two, chapter 2 or even to like chapters 3 and 4 with the more popular things, I think that we actually lose out on one of the most encouraging parts of the whole book. Uh, and so, we'll, but I don't just want you to take my word for it. We're going to pick up now in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul is going to wrap up chapter 1 with a pretty rousing call to unity within the body. Uh, He he shows the church as, as not just he and they suffer persecution, but as this group of people like side by side. And I always found that language just so encouraging uh, of like this this like tight-knit group, almost like in my mind, I think of like Red Rover, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll come back to that kind of idea in a little bit, but this, this command that he gives is to live for the gospel, like let your manner of life, essentially saying let how you walk and let how you're identified be the gospel. And then he tells them that they shouldn't be frightened. Remember, we talked about this last time, but Paul is currently sitting in prison in Rome And he's pretty likely that he thinks he's going to be executed. We know that he's not, but it's not uncommon for you to be killed when you're on trial in Rome. And the Philippian church suffered pretty severe persecution, particularly extreme poverty. So this command to not be frightened comes with a lot of weight behind it. And then he tells them to stand firm in unity. Something he'll discuss later on when he encourages people in the church who are fighting to some degree to be unified. He starts here. 
And he closes the chapter with this encouraging truth that everything works together because God has called them to. Now, this is a really, like, packaged, intense couple verses. But what I want to do is just focus on one theme that we see through it. And that's unity. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Particularly what unites us and how we're called to be united. So, why does it matter? Why is unity important? And why must we pursue biblical unity? Do I really need to answer that? We, we all are so aware uh, acutely of how divided our world is. I mean, we almost have to escape the news cycle and social media and all that just to get a break from it, right? I mean, we live in a divided country. That's more clear now than it has ever been before. Many of us know what it's like to live in a divided home. And all of us know the struggle of a divided heart. And yet, the gospel calls and demands that Christians and churches be different. That's going to be our first point for tonight, that we are, point number one, united by the gospel. 7 and 28. We as Christians are first and foremost united in the gospel. And as Galatians 3.28 tells us, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if we are in Christ, all of these old identity markers that we used to pride ourselves on, that we used to understand ourselves and those around us by, are swallowed up. Ethnicity, nationality, gender, social status, all these things fall away in the face of the gospel. And church, this is what makes nationalism and racism and sexism of any kind something vile and sinful that must be confronted in our churches. Because what it really says is it's not just some innocuous grandpa who we just kind of got to laugh off his comments. But what it says is that what divides us is more significant than what unites us. It says ultimately that Christ is subservient to the fact that I'm an American and you're not. Or that we look different. Or that we're from different places. And we may not mean that with our actions, but that's truly what our hearts are saying in that moment. Now, this isn't to say that these old identities don't matter. But it does mean that in the gospel, we are one people. Something that we must be careful to treasure and not lose. Especially in a world that is so counter to this. But what is it that makes this so different and so unique? It's the good news. The good news that we were once dead, citizens of this world whose identities were in our flesh, our sin against God himself. And this identity comes with a price, and that price is our life, one we cannot afford. We didn't just make mistakes, and we weren't good people who just made bad choices sometimes. We were citizens of the kingdom of evil, and we wore it well. But God, out of his own abundant love and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to take the place for our sins. 
And not just that, but to call us into new life. He says to us, it's from Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What other identity And see, when that happens in the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is, new, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So again, all of these old things that used to be the core of who we were, they are done away with. And behold, this is one of the Bible's way of saying stop and listen to what's to come. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All our sin and our failures and our old identities are gone. And what good news that is because we are new. And if that's not you, I would encourage you, I would implore you, ask yourself, what can the world, the identities that the world gives you, what can it really offer you? This is the offer that Christ has, has laid bare to the world. I implore you, trust in Him. And in being a new creation, we're not even citizens of this world any longer. Philippians 3.21, one of my favorite verses. He says, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. We have a new zip code, as it were. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these former things, while they may have been important to us, we may have even loved them, they aren't worth comparing to this new identity, this new citizenship in Christ. He is the treasure that's worth giving up everything for. The king who would make rebels his own. That is what unites us. That is more significant than any other identity on earth. Here's where we need to stop and address a frighteningly common error in our church, our church, but in the church, especially among people who treasure theology. See, the longer we're in a healthy church and the more we see the glories of Scripture and learn about the theology within, the easier it can become to be tempted to say, well, I, I get all that. And, you know, we just talked about the gospel. I believe it. I know it. I can tell it to you in my sleep. I can write it in three languages. But I want to get to the good stuff. No good stuff beyond this. There is no moving past the gospel. We never go past the gospel. We only go deeper into it. Now, that might sound like a semantics issue to you, but I promise you the difference is vast and it is deadly. Because when our theology is separated from the gospel, it becomes gospel-less. It is a worldly wisdom that will lead us to one place, hell. And the road that it's on is padded by good books and dead hearts. And this is the evil that will kill a church all in the name of good theology. God, let that 
Let that not be us. But let us be a people who decide to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Because when we understand that we're united by the gospel, all other things fall away. And our passage tonight gives us two very specific places, and I don't think Paul says them by accident. He says of one spirit and of one mind, which sounds very much like something Paul says, but it also sounds very much like something where we're like, I get it, but also like, what do you mean? And so the good news is we're going to talk about that tonight. And uh, you, if you're taking notes, these are going to be two subpoints from point number one. And the first is that we are a family. So when Paul calls us one spirit, he's calling the church a family. And if you look throughout scripture, it does not take you very long to find a, an allusion to the church as brothers and sisters. Now like any family, the church has its quirks, right? <laughs> and its uniqueness. But it's a family nonetheless. And as a family, we are called to support and care for one another. Helping each other stand firm. Remember that, that, that illusion that Paul gives, that picture he gives of standing side by side. And here is where we see the importance of the local church and of committing to the local church. Ever really commit to your family? Really claim to love them? I mean, would you let me stand up here and tell you that I love my wife and my daughter if I saw them once a month? That's, that's dumb. <laughs> I heard a pastor explain it in that he said, no true love ever comes without commitment. Because how can they properly care for you and how could you ever support them if you're an absent member of the family who we see on Christmas and Easter? Yeah, church, this is a vulnerable spot to be in where we can and likely will be hurt. It is weak. It is hard. Just as we deal with hurt in our physical family, we must deal with hurt in our church family. The gospel itself is at stake. And if we look back at 2 Corinthians again, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Let that start in the church. under no pretense that that's a magical statement that makes the hardship and, and the suffering and the conflict go away but what it does mean is that what unites us in the gospel has to be more important than being right and the reason I, I, I said that we have to look at this passage is because in chapter 4 when Paul calls two women to reconcile he can't do that until he gets this point across that they are essentially feuding sisters tearing the family apart. But there's a second way that, that Paul speaks of, in that we are a body. With one mind, we strive together as one body. Scripture will often refer to the church as a body, and like a body, we're all different. I mean, I picked a tighter shirt. You can see I'm not the arm, right? There's no muscle here. <laughs> but if you ask my wife, I'm the mouth and a zealous one at that. Um, 
But we as Christians have different roles and gifts that are designed by God to complement each other so that we can work together and strive forward as one body in the same way that the legs carry the body where it needs to go, but it has to be guided by the eyes. And this matters because a healthy body is always going for the same goal. When someone is sick, when the immune system attacks the body, we don't ignore that because something is wrong. And when the church doesn't act as a family or as a body, we don't just hurt each other. We distort the gospel. The very thing that we claim as Christians unites us. And this is why Paul will say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I think he is calling out division and self-righteousness in this passage. He's warning us against it. See, the Philippian church, I don't think Paul was too worried about their sexual immorality. I think what he was worried about was what we talked about with Pastor Clay a few weeks ago, that they would bite and devour one another. And this is why we must resist and fight the temptation to take tertiary issues and give them first importance. Because not only do we lose the gospel, we destroy each other in the process. Our gospel witness is lost. It is not an easy work. It is a hard work and it is a fight. But it is a fight worth having. And this isn't a unity like the world. It's not a gospel country club where we all are an exclusive kind of group that that prides ourselves on the fact that not everybody can come in. It's not an HOA, praise. And it's even more than a support group where we can kind of identify a little bit with each other because you know my struggle and I know yours. And it's different because of one reason. Verse 29 or it has been, hear this, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The point number two is, is what makes this different than anything else, in that we are united by the Father. Just from verse 29. God the Father has granted to us to believe in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. He has caused this well of faith, this unity in the gospel to spring up in us. And we're all brought into this faith by one God, into one faith. And this is significant because if we all come into the family the same way, there's no room for boasting or pride or self-righteousness because it's all grace. And yes, if we keep reading, suffering has been granted as well. But this suffering is not wasted. It's not without purpose, but for what? For the sake of Christ. And to unify His people. So for Christians, suffering isn't just on the table, it's promised. I mean, just look at Paul. I once heard a, a, a missionary give it this way. He had said, you know, I've been, I've been around the world and I've spoken at a lot of churches and a lot of times they'll have, you know, the billionaire come in and he'll say, you know, before I met Jesus, I was dumb as a box of rocks and 
I couldn't, you know, rub two pennies together, but then I met Jesus, and he changed my life. And then the soccer star will come in, and he'll be like, I was, you know, I tripped over my own feet, and I couldn't do anything, nobody was my friend, but then I met Jesus, and he changed my life. And he was like, just once, I wish they would invite the Apostle Paul to that, right? Before I met Jesus, my life was great. I had the respect of all my peers. I could do whatever I wanted. People gave me permission to do whatever, and then I met Jesus, and he ruined my life. And that is his argument of Philippians. Jesus will ruin your life, but he is worth it because he gives you a new kingdom. If we look to Galatians, he'll tell us that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The image of a burden in Scripture being a load that is too great to carry on your own. That's where this picture Paul gives, I keep coming back to, of striving side by side is so encouraging. And church, I firmly believe, and, and thank you again for your sermon on Satan and his, his schemes that's why he works so hard to isolate us from the church. To make us bitter and selfish and angry. We've all watched National Geographic. Clay talked about his Instagram of like metal nature or whatever. I don't know. I'm not hip enough for that. But if you see, Satan is called a lion not by accident. Because if you watch these, the lion doesn't like head straight into the herd. What does it do? They're opportunity predators is what they're called. They wait for a straggler or the weak or the sick or the left behind, and then they pounce. Church, Satan knows that we are never weaker than when we are isolated from the body. Do not fall for his schemes that are thousands of years old. Then there's this encouragement of, of the burdens of life feeling like they're crushing us. Stick with me. I know I said encouragement at the start. Paul will talk about, I despaired beyond life itself. I wanted to die. In fact, a little earlier than this, Paul talks about to live as Christ, to die as gain. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I'd probably rather die, is what he's saying. But... Me, the church body will hold me up and help me push on. It reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. We actually had to talk about this in the Sunday school today. Uh, it's by John Bunyan, and Christian, the main character, is invited by the king to come to the celestial city. And so he takes on this journey. He leaves everything behind, and he is beset on every side by some awful struggles. But he finally makes it to the end. And the last step, if you've never read it, is the river death. It is this great river, and it is, you can see the city, the celestial city, where the king resides right on the other side, but you have to cross it alone. And so, he starts to trudge in. But then, he starts to think back at his failures, at his sin. Looks at himself and his inadequacies begins to sink and to drown. While he is gasping for air, he begins to lose hope. Well, 
flip just to the next page. Hopeful, his brother who has been with him for most of his journey, runs up to him, swims up to him, yanks him up out of the water and holds him up all the while reminding him that victory has, or death has no victory and hell has no claim because they belong to the king and the king will see them through. Not a glorious picture. You will never find that anywhere but in the body of Christ. That when this life and the sins in it drag you down and begin to drown you to where you're gasping for air, a friend that's closer than a brother, the church will hold you up and remind you of the truth. Love, church. we think more about this passage I think I would be remiss to not ask the question why why do we have to read for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake like why did God feel the need to add that couldn't he just stopped it granted to believe Peter 5 gives us the answer he says after you have suffered a little while The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why has suffering been granted? God himself. Himself. Can step in and restore, establish you. You are not left behind. You are not forgotten. You are not alienated from Christ. He is with you and he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What else is there? I will never forget reading this for the first time and seeing that God will himself. The hands that hung the stars are the hands that will restore and hold you up. That's why I asked Joe to to lead us and he will hold me fast at the close because this is the truth of Scripture. Why Paul can say, in my weakness he is strong. Because all this is true, we can endure the third point. Point number three, we are united by suffering. Verses 29 and 30. Now we've looked at this some, but this is a heavy topic and I want to handle it with care because not only is it laced through Philippians, but let's be honest, none of us are immune to suffering. But hear this. All the glory of of God uniting us to the church is not where he stops. not only are we united to the body in suffering, we're united to Christ himself. 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is one of those verses that we will really consciously agree with. But it is really hard to believe that Jesus actually knows. Like, can he really sympathize? He's Jesus. I mean, come on, cut me a break. And if we're honest, suffering is when he feels most distant. Like, where are you? 
I mean, he's the sovereign, the king of all kings. Does he really know what it's like? While that is true, this is also a picture the Bible gives us of Christ. The high and lifted up son of God, despised and rejected by men. Same men that he handcrafted then beat him beyond recognition. A man of sorrows well acquainted with grief who is betrayed by his closest friends. Sold for a bag of change. And watching his friends deny him to his face. A tree he called into being, leaving a line in the dirt up a hill, only to be nailed to it and bleed to death on an earth that was created solely to glorify him. And one from whom men hide their faces, abandoned by those he loved at his greatest hour, forsaken by the Father. all this that should be you that should be me in every line of that but he took our punishment but in that he also experienced suffering to a greater degree than you or I or any of us will ever know all that so it's your weakest and most desperate and broken God himself can draw near to you and say my son my daughter I know I, too, have suffered. Love was the church bearing our burdens. I wish I I had some really nice anecdote to give you. knowing the maker of heaven and earth intimately knowing your suffering and still being able to call out to you with confidence come to me all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest ever you're looking for rest drop it and come here because Christian this promise is for you Rest is true and real and guaranteed by the God himself who will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Look again to Pilgrim's Progress. I want to focus on one of his struggles in particular. Throughout his journey, Christian has this burden. It's literally like a giant rock on his back that he has to carry. And it's, it's rough at first, but it gets worse. It like weighs every step. And everywhere he goes, he begs for mercy that someone can take his burdens from him. But nothing can. And he finally gets to Moses and he's like, finally, some help. You know what Moses does? He beats him. The law. gets to this hill and he trudges up and up and up and he falls to his knees and he is at his end and he looks up and do you know what he sees? 
the burden that he has carried for so long falls off his back and is swallowed up, never to be seen again. There are so many of us who sit in sermon after sermon and Bible study after Bible study, exhausted from the burdens of life. And we have looked and begged to everyone and everything, take this from me, please. Hold the cross. Behold the Lamb of God, and your burden will be swallowed up, and He will give you rest. It may not be immediate, maybe not how you would imagine it, but whether on this side of eternity or the next, the cross is the only place in all creation that can ever promise and deliver rest. Church, this is not an empty well like the world offers you. This is the well of life who makes a well spring up in you. opposite to the church today, right? Suffering is a problem to be solved rather than a way to be brought near to God and his people. The world says it doesn't make sense to have this God in charge of everything and your life not be perfect, right? I mean, look at Job. Look at David in Psalm 42. You know what his friends say to him when his life is in shambles? David, where is your God? Speaking of Job, what does his wife say when she finds him in ashes and agony? So we'll end up with false teachers who will promise you that if you just believe more or pray the right prayer or just sow a seed, then God will give you whatever you want or need. Let's be honest. Even if we wanted that to be true, if we really wanted it, we all know it's a lie. And so we end up running from one empty well to the next, to the next. And all we end up is more tired when carrying our burdens further than before. That's what the Bible says about suffering. In Acts 5, after Peter and John were beaten, then they left the, count, the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul will say in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Like Job, when God allows suffering in our life, he uses it to draw us closer to himself. Beautiful reminder we got this morning that Job had first heard, but through his suffering, his eyes now saw. Don't miss that, church. The true meaning of the unity that we're talking about tonight is starting to be revealed. Philippians 3, 10 to 11, Paul's speaking about suffering the loss of all things, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So these current sufferings, they may be great and they may be terrible. God promises that they are not even worth comparing. They're not even on the radar of the glory to be revealed. Because the resurrection that we will be brought into with Christ is one where He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Indulge me with one last reference to Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and Hopeful, uh, at the end of their story, they finally cross the river Death. Uh, they're greeted by this heavenly host who cleans them up. And, uh, but then two men come. And this is my favorite line in the whole book. Men in brilliant white come and say, These are the men, Christian and hopeful, who have loved the Lord when they were in the world, the world of suffering, and have left all for his holy name. And he has sent us to fetch them. And we have brought them thus far on their journey. They may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. Hope here. Do not tether yourself to dead weights. Find your hope here. God has united us through belief and through suffering to this Christ and this hope. And He is sure. And He will hold us fast. He has overcome the world and the sufferings in it. And one day all the burdens of this world will pass away. Till then, I ask you with Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. All these things. All these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, as we close tonight, ask that you would bless this church. Give us eyes to see this body as our true family, God. And how we might love one another well. 
Lord, protect our unity and cast out anything that would stop us from growing in our, in, in our love to you and to these people. Forgive us for seeking strength on our own and cleanse us of the sin of pursuing our comfort and our own wisdom at all costs. We ask that you would not waste a drop of our suffering, but keep your promise and use it to purify us that we may be pure and blameless at the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Lord God, remind us that our burdens are swallowed up by the cross, never to be seen again. And be an ever-present help in our time of need. Give us a thirst for heaven that nothing on earth can distract us from or satisfy. In the name of Christ, our Redeemer, we wait to look upon face to face.